0: American politics feels chaotic. Is it because we are too polarized or because we are too fragmented? Or is it a little bit of both? Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about our political institutions and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Wallner. I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University.
1: And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
0: Well, our guest today to help us answer these questions is Rick Hildes. Rick is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law. He's also the author of a, of a new law review article, a, a very intriguing article. On democracies in the age of fragmentation, which he advances a very intriguing argument that to quote him, political power today is now effectively dispersed among so many different hands, so many different people and among so many different centers of power, political parties, organized outside groups, non-organized groups and even individual actors that it becomes difficult to marshal enough political power and authority for democratic governments to govern effectively. So welcome, Rick. And, you know, I want to dive into this. I want to hear because this sounds very different from something that I think my esteemed colleague here, Lee Drupman, has argued in the past on his book, uh, Breaking the Two-Party Doomloop. But before we get there, and I, and I want, I really want to kind of see what you two, how we can, like, what you think of each other and your ideas and i want to hear who ultimately is right because i think only one of us can be right in this right
1: uh, that's a that's a very binary zero-sum winner take all i i want to i want to think of things in a in a building coalitions and compromise way
0: yeah no this is we're in thunderdome this is thunderdome we, uh but <laughs> before we get there rick tell me pildas is a, is a last name i've not seen a surname i've not seen before what's the backstory there
2: well the family story which actually is true i have confirmed this um is it's a it's a name in um, genesis for the bible the part that i'm afraid I, i hope i don't screw this up my memory of this is that moshe had a brother who had a number of kids and one of the kids was named pildash in hebrew and that became Pildis. so the name has been the same for many 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 generations it wasn't a name changed. At Ellis Island, although I guess the historians tell us many fewer names were actually changed in Ellis Island than we used to think, but anyway, it's it's a it's a, a name that goes back to to Genesis actually.
0: That's. Fascinating. It's actually how being from South Georgia, I probably would have uh, pronounced it the first time. So I'm glad to hear that I was was correct, at least at least in my head. But uh, get back, getting back to your law review article and what I hope I can turn into an argument with, uh, with Lee here um, about your argument, but I need to understand it first. So what is this fragmentation? Walk our listeners through it. Why is it a problem? Why is it happening now? Why, why should we worry about it?
2: yeah so you know as you said my my perception is that the sort of structure and organization of political power now in democracies across the west um is very different than what it was 20 30 years ago um in part because of the communications revolution and because of a variety of stresses uh and issues that are now dominating politics uh and what's different is uh that political is is dispersed across many political parties now in the PR systems of Europe in a way it wasn't before it's dispersed outside the parties to you know lots of uh, individual actors various groups it's much easier to mobilize significant political power uh, quickly almost spontaneously unorganized groups uh whether it's the yellow vests in Spain the indignados I mean the yellow Vests in France the indignados in Spain uh and the like can, can be marshal very effectively to oppose political power and more concretely in the democracies of Western Europe the most visible manifestation of this is the way in which the structure of government the structure of political party competition is fundamentally different now than it has been since World War II in these democracies so a way to understand what's happened in the Western European democracies and I think very similar forces are taking place in the U.S but they get expressed differently. And the way it gets expressed in Western Europe is, since World War II, most of these governments essentially functioned as what was called two and a half party systems. There was a dominant center right party, a dominant center left party. Sometimes uh, one of those was able to to win a majority in the government, in the parliament. Sometimes they needed a smaller party to make a majority, to form a government, but it produced fairly stable politics Fairly central, more centrist, you know, kind of politics, uh, continuous governments, and that's completely collapsed. And this has happened over the last decade or so, roughly. Uh, slightly different pace, in, you know, in different countries, but most of these countries are now five or six party democracies. Uh, and there are large economic, you know, disaffections that are driving this. There are large cultural conflicts that are driving this. And I also think the communications revolution plays a major role. But to just make it concrete, some of the manifestations of this fragmentation of politics in Europe are that, uh, number one, it can take much longer to form governments in the first place in PR democracies. So Germany, for example, which was you know, long thought after the, the new post-World War II German system got sort of established, you know long thought to be probably the most stable democracy in Western Europe uh after the 2017 elections it took them longer than it had ever taken in german history to form a government because the the christian democrats and the social democrats you know which between them used to get 90 percent of the vote uh no longer would even get 50 percent of the vote between them they have to split power with these smaller parties the green party the liberal party or the free democrats or depending on how you translate it the afd which they don't want to share power with but which you know, is the far right party the anti-immigration party that has a significant seat at the table now or at least a significant number of seats in government so one manifestation is it's it's taking a lot longer to even form governments in some of these uh, in a number of these countries a second manifestation is the governments are much less stable because the coalitions that have to be cobbled together across five or six parties are frequently somewhat incoherent coalitions you have to put together Germany right now for example for the first time in its history is governed by a three-party coalition that coalition includes the Green Party as well as the um I keep forgetting their name but I think the free or the liberal Democrats what is their name Lee? I think okay. they're the free Democratic party
1: but they're they're basically the a, cl- Dem- a classical liberal party
2: yeah they're like a libertarian or classical liberal party very different than a green party so so the coalitions that are formed are more fragile uh because they aren't these strong large dominant parties governments are collapsing much more frequently uh spain for example had to have four national elections between 2015 and 2019 just to try to find a government uh, to actually form a stable majority voters are much less clear what they're voting for in terms of what coalition will end up getting put together to to run the government and uh as i say uh the coalitions are often ideologically at odds with each other. Uh, and um, there's obviously tremendous dissatisfaction with government in Western Europe, as there is in the United States. All of these democracies are now experiencing you know, extremely high levels of citizen alienation, frustration, distrust. And this fragmentation you see in Western Europe of politics is both a sign of the inability of governments to deliver what people seem to want But perversely, it makes it that much harder at the same time for those governments to do that because power is now so dispersed. And it's become incredibly easy to mobilize opposition to government. Governments have much less time to try to implement policy. The opposition gets mobilized very, very quickly. That's what you see in Western Europe. Now in the U.S., because we have a first-past-the-post-election system, which Lee dislikes, all of those forces are still present. I think many of the same economic issues, many of the same cultural issues uh, are all present here, but the fragmentation gets expressed more within the two-party system. And so you see, in my view, both hyperpolarized political parties, which we're very aware of, uh, but what I think people are less aware of is the internal factionalization in the parties in a form that makes it harder, even with unified government, for one party to actually deliver effectively on the issues that uh, many citizens care most urgently about so just one last point I'm sorry if I'm going on too long you should interrupt me whenever you want but you know it's really extraordinary if we think about the Republican party they basically devoured two of their own speakers of the house in recent years you know John Boehner was forced out Paul Ryan gave up the ship because the Republican caucus was ungovernable um, we can talk about the Democratic Party, which may not be in a severe position with these internal fissures, but certainly deeply internally divided. But but anyway, that's sort of the way I generally see the predicament of democracies in our era, the disaffection leading to the rise of all sorts of new forces, new parties, new organizations that make it all that much harder for Democratic governments to actually function and deliver. And I guess let me just, I said I'd stop, but let me just close with this point. Uh, I, I think we do not focus enough attention in political reform discussions and academic theory on democracy on the central value of delivering effective government. I think it's incredibly dangerous for democracies when many citizens perceive their governments not to be able, not to be delivering effectively. And you know, Joe Biden has defined his historical role at this moment as exactly this, proving democracies can once again deliver effective government uh, because of the uncertainty
0: over the last decade of whether that remains true. Well, when they get rid of daylight savings time and you know, we have just one time, then we'll know that we've arrived. But no, it's a very intriguing idea. It's, you're right, it's one we hear very often. But, but Lee, Rick wants to bring back Tammany Hall. What do you say? And I, he doesn't actually want to bring back Tammany Hall. I,
1: I don't know. I mean, it was it was effective government, uh, but it it uh, was effective government that uh, was effective for the people who were on the ins and not on the outs. Um, but I I, I want to start by saying I I, th- I think it's an incredibly important point that we should think about the effectiveness of government, and I think uh, it's something I, I've. Thought a lot about congressional the importance of of congressional capacity and and I, I will would, would
0: tell our listeners we'll have a link to to this uh, law review article and another law review article that Rick has written in our show notes and this is just the the general approach and how you think about politics it's very helpful and it's a very good it's a very intriguing look um, but go for it all
1: right so uh, yeah th- there's a question of state capacity more broadly and I think there's a uh, an emerging conversation. Uh, in some reform circles about state capacity. And I think it's incredibly important. I I agree with you, Rick, uh, very much that we've taken a very individualistic view of political, of democracy reform in the US, and we don't think enough about organized power and the effectiveness of of government. I want to step back. You've brought up this question of stresses on democracies, both, uh, you know, in the U.S. and and in Western Europe. And I I think it's exactly right that there are a a lot of stresses on democracy. A lot of this comes out of the financial crisis and the aftermath of that comes out of the stresses that immigration is putting on many Western European democracies and a sort of broader urban-rural divide between the the cities where there seems to be a thriving cosmopolitan economy, and the periphery where I think a lot of (coughs) folks feel like they're being left behind. So I, I grant all that as well as the changes in social media and information. Now, the question that I have is thinking about what kinds of political and party systems are most able to manage these stresses now when when you, you know, write in your article that uh, you know 30 new parties have formed in European Parliaments from 2015 to 2017 I say well maybe that's a good thing because maybe some of the old parties, We're not connecting with voters or representing voters' concerns, and maybe a certain amount of churn in the political party space is actually a sign of the health of the party system. And part of the challenge in the the first-past-the-post system, particularly in the U.S., uh, and to some extent the UK. And I would also say well, France and Spain are more majoritarian than proportional in their systems, and so is Italy. Uh, but focusing on the US as compared to the more proportional countries, that it's it's very hard. There's, a, there's tremendous dissatisfaction uh, with the party system in the US. But the most striking aspect of the 2022 election is that nothing changed there was one incumbent governor who lost not a single incumbent senator lost only seven incumbent house members lost so there's this incredible stability amidst dissatisfaction whereas in the european system you know the the cdu and the uh, the, the, the center right merkel's party did did a little bit worse in the last election the spd the the socialist center-left party did a little bit better. They led the coalition. Uh, but there was space, f- as some of those parties bled some voters, there was space for the liberals, the Free Democrats, and the Greens to step up. And now there's a three-party coalition. It seems to be going pretty well. I don't think anybody's complaining that Germany is on the brink of collapse. The AFD has has fallen away somewhat to the wayside. So I mean I, I think there's tremendous variation across Western European countries uh, in uh, the party system and the extent to which they you know there's dissatisfaction and my sense is that the proportional countries, uh, are managing to uh, kind of ride out these challenges a little bit better in part because the two-party system, as this is the case in the US and the UK, is really amplifying these urban versus rural uh, divides because of the way that geography is layered on top of partisanship so strongly, whereas in the European proportional countries, there's parties of the right that represent the cities and there's parties of the left that represent some of the more peripheral areas. And so the the fact that the coalitions are shifting is actually a sign that politics is responsive. And moreover, the fact that the coalitions continue to, to shift suggests that uh, it, or that uh, the coalition's continue to f- to to shift actually is is healthy because it cuts against the effect of polarization in the us where people have the same enemies on issue after issue on election after election. whereas in countries in which coalition shift, Uh, Voters tend to see more parties favorably because their party has been in coalition with different parties. And actually, there's some pretty compelling evidence that shifting coalitions is uh, uh, essential for reducing effective polarization. And that effective polarization, I think, fuels extremism. Because when you see one party uh, as the enemy, you start to really demonize that party and that undermines compromise and that undermines moderation. And so in that sense, the, the extremism that I think we see in the U.S. is really a, a, a product of this binary party system that creates these fearsome stakes in every election. So, Lee,
0: fragmentation is bad. Rick, fragmentation's good. For effective governance. No, I don't think it's Making sure everybody's paying attention. No, so Rick, go for it. What do you help help our listeners understand why why, or, why or, Lee's
1: wrong? Or rather, I, I would say that that the fragment that that fragmentation is a is a reality, and the question is is whether certain systems are better for dealing and managing the fragmentation that is that is in response to the fact that the existing structures and the existing parties have not responded well to some of the the demands on them so the
2: first thing i would say and and it's unfortunate that in you know reform kind of advocacy um there's less willingness to kind of acknowledge this but you know we try to realize a variety of values in structuring democratic institutions and those values sometimes conflict and we have to make their trade-offs their compromises their attentions Uh, no reforms without its potential disadvantages and its advantages, which are what the advocates focus on alone. Um, So uh, it may be true that you get more representation in this fragmented world in a PR system that allows you to have six political parties that are, you know, have significant representation. Um, And it may be that more people feel represented in that structure. But for me, the priority value that we need to pay much more attention to, as we've already discussed, is: Are these governments going to be able to deliver effective government? And it, you know, it's a little harder to see that in a way because it's not sort of an immediate, tangible thing like seeing a green party or a Christian nationalist party uh, or uh, you know a, a free market libertarian party in government. Um, but we all know we have become much more aware uh, of the risks when lots of citizens feel these governments aren't delivering and i think that risk is a tremendous concern that we need to really give great priority to in our in our particular moment so there's a, there are trade offs there my and as i've said my worry is um whether this fragmented party structure whatever its positive qualities in terms of representation um whether it's going to actually uh Continue to make it so hard for governments to deliver effectively. Now, we all, or most of us, are are you know incredibly frustrated by the toxic tribal nature of political culture in the United States these days, and the desire to find a sort of a silver bullet that would you know somehow get us out of this structure. Um, I do believe institutional design can make a difference, you know, in terms of the incentives it gives to politics, but or to politicians. But I am also skeptical uh, of of putting on the first past the post system the responsibility for the kind of toxic tribal effective polarization that now characterizes the US. You know, after all, you know, the UK, which you've mentioned is also a first past the post system. That system, you know, for decades was described as a a one of of consensual kind of moderate pragmatic kind of politics that characterized the UK. it's true that with Brexit, you know, the country was, you know, kind of torn apart that wasn't effective polarization between the parties. I mean, both parties were internally riven over Brexit, but it's that's an existential issue. It's the kind of issue that countries don't face that often. Um, and it's understandable that you would have huge divides over an issue of political identity like Brexit, you know, as Brexit seems to be kind of being put behind the UK especially more recently, you see both of the political parties there have moved towards more pragmatic, technocratic, kind of more centrist figures, both with, uh, you know, Sunak in the Conservative Party and um, Keir Starmer in the Labour Party. Um, and you don't see anything like the effective polarization uh, in the UK politics, whatever it's, you know, conflicts that you see in the United States so um, there are lots of things about political culture in the United States we could you know talk about from a sociological perspective Uh, but I I start off skeptical that this one institutional feature has created this kind of culture and if we only get rid of that feature these things will dissipate so that's in terms of the diagnosis of our problem and my concern about whether the diagnosis is right my concern about the remedy is that um, if we have five or six parties in the United States if we were to adopt you know Lee's proposal for um and it's not just Lee other people are you know very supportive of this idea uh for Congress Congress changing the statute allowing states to have multi-member districts um ideally each would elect five people to Congress So a state like Michigan, which has 14 representatives, you'd have a five-person district, a five-person district, a four-person district. So in these five-person districts, presumably you'd have 10 or more candidates running in the general election. And not only would we go to multi-member districts, but to make the system work, since almost half the states don't even have five representatives, we'd have to increase the size of the house, which is part of the proposal for shifting to PR in the US, so we have to imagine a, something like a 700 person house with six political parties, each of the major parties fragmented into, you know, maybe three smaller units. And I am just deeply concerned, uh, given what we've seen with the fragmentation of politics in Europe, given the importance of government showing it can actually deliver policy on the issues that citizens view as most urgent, most pressing. I find it not easy to imagine why government would do that more effectively with six political parties in a 700 member house as difficult as it is now with a two-party system and let me just say this I think I'll stop here but this is the last point there is much more room within the two-party system in the U.S. for dramatic pressures from within and for outside pressures to be channeled uh, by entrepreneurial candidates who do actually shift the parties over significantly I mean after all you know, Donald Trump remade the Republican Party in an incredibly profound way. Uh, he completely changed central features of the ideology of the Republican Party, whether it was uh, his commitment to not touching Social Security and Medicare, whether it was his move against free trade and towards more protectionist policies, whether it was his stance on immigration. I mean, we've seen the Republican Party, for better or worse, transform dramatically uh within this two-party structure uh and we've seen the Democrats uh move very significantly you know to the left as a result of internal pressure from the progressive voters and wing of the part wings of the party so I just don't think it's right to to describe the the U.S first past the post system is so stagnant in that way my view is it's better to channel these kinds of forces within a two-party structure because whatever the differences between different factions in a party they still have a common interest in the party's success. I mean, they may not, some may hold that more strongly than others, but, you know, fundamentally, they're still on the same team in some sense, and that can force compromise uh, and acceptance of of some differences in the service of the larger, you know, team's agenda or electoral prospects. You take those, those fissures and you locate them in a bunch of different parties, each of which now has its own electoral incentives, its own desire to maximize the party's number of seats in the Congress, party leaders who are looking to advance their own you know, kind of careers. Uh, and I'm just very concerned that in our disaffection with this you know, un, really unhealthy, toxic political culture, we're grasping for silver bullets that could actually make the situation worse rather than better. And political there are political reforms in the past that people have thought would be, you know, wonderful advances for democracy that have actually made the democratic system worse. So I think, you know, I'm I'm careful about jumping on reform bandwagons too quickly, without the advantages and disadvantages of proposals being really thoroughly
1: ventilated and thought about. So, when I think about government effectiveness. I, I have in front of me a democracy index of the. Economist Intelligence Unit, which ranks uh, countries, a number of characteristics, including their government effectiveness. And I'm going to read down the list one through nine. Norway, number one, PR country. New Zealand, number two, PR country. Iceland, number three, PR country. Oh, come on. Sweden number. Uh, you gonna give me Iceland, New Zealand, Sweden, okay, Sweden, go ahead. Uh, Finland, Denmark, Switzerland, Ireland, Netherlands, right? I mean, so whereas whereas you get down to number 31 at the U.S., uh, UK is kind of in the middle, and so I mean, I th- I think a lot of these these European countries are performing quite well. Now we could argue wh- whether it's something else about the countries that has nothing to do with the voting system and. You know, I, I, I'm I am an evangelist for PR, but I'm not a silver bullet evangelist. I think there's a lot of other things going on that are separate from the the system, and one one of those things is, of course, the challenges of multi ethnic, multiracial democracy in the U S., which is somewhat distinct from the U K., which is still a pretty homogenous society, although certainly becoming more diverse and it seems to me that and pretty distinct from all those countries you just listed of course in the same way yeah yeah i mean I, I, a lot of the, a lot of those european countries are also pretty ethnically homogenous although also becoming more diverse so i mean diversity uh, is a is certainly a challenge to managing a, a democracy but I, I do think that one reason why we should take pr seriously actually has to do with this question of diversity, of multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy, which is that a majoritarian system is very oriented towards a winner-take-all mentality, and... Given the diversity of our political system or of our of our polity and the fact that one party, the Republican Party, has you know, really become very dominantly white, although it is diversifying a little bit, and the Democratic Party has always been the, the overwhelmingly the party of black voters and is a much more diverse party, the fact that you have this binary party system layered on top of all these racial and ethnic identities, on top of all this urban versus rural identity, creates this this effective polarization dynamic that I think actually undermines government effectiveness. Because when I think about government effectiveness, it's the ability for the parties to, in our system, to so to sort of have some overlap where you can have some compromise and that doesn't exist and moreover at the administrative state level i look at what the transition between the obama and the trump administration and it's like a 180 in policy and then from the trump administration to the biden administration is also a 180 in policy so as you have this this effective polarization and this uh, it becomes a policy polarization because each administration wants to do the opposite of what the other administration does and that creates a, a reinforcing dynamic. Whereas the the ability because you have to form a coalition government in these multi party coalitions, the government position doesn't change all that much. And even if you have a government that. a coalition that falls apart you still have a caretaker government which is just sort of continuing uh, uh, the existence so i I think the the back and forth and the shifts in policy are are much greater at the administrative level which is actually causing just a lot of people to to leave government jobs which is undermining the effectiveness of government
0: rick help our listeners understand and unpack what lee just said
1: My
2: my role isn't to help make Lee clear. No, certainly
0: in a way that it advances your argument. My role is to pounce on his uh, lack of ab- clarity. Absolutely. That's <laughs> I, I was hoping that was where you oh, were was
1: go. I was I unclear, James? <laughs> so, you know,
2: first of all, on that front, I mean you're still gonna have the first pass of the post system for the presidency, and you're still gonna have it for the Senate. And that's where all of the you know administrative the the, the the staffing of the administrative state takes place and any changes that take place in policy through the administrative apparatus you know none of that would change if we had pr for the house so i'm not really i mean maybe you think it would in some way but it's not immediately apparent to me why why that would be the case in terms of legislation, there is, you know, the, the ballast, if you will, for better or worse in the system is, you know, the bicameralism and separation of power. So it's not so easy to, to massively change legislation from one election to the next, uh, because you do have to actually be able to win multiple elections over several cycles, building up large enough majorities, you know, both in the House and the Senate and to control the White House before you can really dramatically you know, change policy legislatively so the flipping back and forth you're talking about i think is more the administrative it is but, but that and-
1: but the presidency the the polarization of the presidency is a reflection of the polarization of the parties and then reinforces the polarization of the parties and as the parties polarize congress becomes less and less effective and as a result congress just is Uh, gridlocked on so many issues that then the executive branch tries to make policy in those areas, which leads to the aggrandizement of the executive branch. Now, maybe the courts will knock down Biden's uh, student loan forgiveness program, and that will put some constraints on what the executive can do. Uh, But generally, the trend has been as polarization between the parties has increased, uh, more and more policymaking has shifted to the executive branch. Now, I mean, would PR for the House change the. the, the I mean, we're going to have a. As long as you have a single presidency, particularly with the Electoral College, you're going to have two major coalitions. But in the past, when we had more overlap between the Democratic and the Republican Party, and we had something like a multi party system within our parties, the president. Candidates tended to move towards the middle because there was a lot of overlap between the two parties, and so you had these pretty big swings from election to election. Uh, whereas now, we're, we're basically things are basically locked in. There, there's just so little terrain for either party to to gain that that we have this uh, reinforcing effect of polarization dynamic going on here. The, my, my so-called doom loop. And I think that's to me, that's that that is the immediate and pressing concern, especially to the extent that 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 leads to extremism, which is a product of in-group versus out-group conflict. So um, because the presidency is, you know, this the, the
2: location of by far the greatest you know power in the system, competition for the presidency is, I think, always going to fundamentally be the force that structures the nature of political competition and so i guess i'm not sure why you think you know given that we still have to have the same structure for the presidency we're not going to move to a parliamentary democracy although maybe your next
1: book will you know argue for that well i, I actually think there's some value to, to to having i i've been i've been going pretty deep into the presidentialism plus pr literature which is largely about latin america And I've actually come to appreciate the value of having a single president because actually in many uh, Latin American countries with PR in the legislature, the presidency actually is a moderating force because the president cares about his or her legacy and wants to move to where the center of the legislature is. Uh, and that president has the most room to maneuver and build coalitions because they the powers of the presidency include cabinet appointments and just sort of being generally the focal point. Uh, so I, and I think that's that's really the you know, there's an old literature on PR and presidentialism, uh, which says that presidentialism is bad and multi-party presidentialism is especially bad. But I think the, the last 30 years or so of studies have said that actually, uh, as long as the presidency doesn't have too ma- too many powers and the legislature isn't too fragmented, i.e. it's not Brazil, uh, things can actually wind up being somewhat moderate
2: yeah so you know we agree on on the point you made earlier which is that congressional dysfunction and paralysis inevitably leads to pressures for the president to take action you know people want people want things done on a variety of issues and so there's no question part of the ex, uh, the expansion of presidential power through both the agencies and through executive orders Uh, is a reaction to a paralyzed political system in Congress the difference we have is I think six parties in Congress with 700 members would make that even worse you think it would make that better and um I I think that's you know that's essentially where we do disagree right right or at least I want to introduce a note of skepticism before this reform train gets hurtling down the track so that you know no right thinking person can actually you know be on
1: the other side of uh all right well well, well well we always need uh skepticism yeah. to to push our thinking and let me just say i'm not a control i don't think of myself
2: as like a contrarian in general i mean i there are political reforms I as you know i do support that we both yeah i think we both support like you know the move toward these top four top five primary
1: structures with ranked choice voting i have some skepticism on on that uh because i i, I think it actually Weakens parties further, um, uh, because it it makes it even harder for parties to exert any control over who their nominees. So. Well, I, I think I think that I think that's definitely a risk. I, my view on this is that we're
2: in a circumstance in which the traditional primary structure, you know is playing such a significant role in fueling the extremism uh, with you know all these office holders who are mainly worried about being primary from the wings, uh, that they you know try to preempt that by moving there themselves. People won't run for office who are credible. You know, you see these retirements from office because they 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 can't make it through a party primary, even though they have broad appeal to the electorate. So I do think that's a legitimate worry with this shift. But I think that you know, on balance, I'm I'm that's an experiment I'm prepared to you know endorse and see go forward. Well,
1: yeah, Alaska. So if we get to a, a better place in in American democracy, what is a f- functional responsible two-party system look like for you and how do we get there
2: <laughs> i'm not sure i thought about the question so directly before um i think you know the we want the parties to be broadly inclusive we want them to be competing for large numbers of voters we want them to be responsive uh to the the, the demands or interests of of large you know segments of the population. You know, we want government to deliver effectively again, um, to the extent it did that at certain points in the past. There a, debate that, I guess Is there
1: a period in U.S. history where you think the party system has resembled that view, the U.S. two-party system?
0: I think I know where you're going.
1: Where is he going? Why don't you
2: tell oh. me before I
0: answer that? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know for sure. I'm going to let you answer first. And then if you, it's what I think and Lee agrees, then I'm going to be like, that's what I thought.
1: All right. OK, we'll, we'll keep you all in suspense here. <laughs> it's
0: actually a question I wanted to ask earlier, too, if, if I'm correct. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I don't have any romantic view about some, you know, idealized period in the past that was, you know, perfect. And I mean, obviously, there are tremendous um, failings of the, the system at, you know, at, e- at every stage. The two party system produced the New Deal, which was capable of, you know, massive restructuring of the American economy, a really transformed economic order um uh, providing a lot more security a lot more people now of course you know um the race issue was put to the side uh and the new deal did not uh address it suppressed the race issue and you know left the system that was uh so abhorrent in the south you know largely in place during all of that period but uh I don't know. Do you, what, what's the answer you're looking for, Lee? I, I don't know, James. What what?
1: There, it, there is no period where the two-party system functioned well. What, what is that? Do you think where I'm going, James? Uh,
0: Mr. Rutherford involved? Uh,
1: uh, oh, the, the election of 1876. Yeah. Is that is that where? Uh, I, I wasn't even going that far back. It's not necessarily that the
0: system was working well, but in, in terms of mobilizing voters, in terms of getting people involved in politics, in terms of encouraging society well, that was, to take an active role, this is the height the very height of voter turnout, right? And throughout and the the most 19th corrupt
1: period of, of US politics
0: too. As Shakespeare says, there's good and bad in everything. And I'm not sure where I come down in this debate, but I it is intriguing to me that the two party system, one thing it does very well, or at least it did very well, was it got people involved in politics. And and I guess maybe that's not necessarily opposed to a multi-party system. I mean,
1: if you look at if you look comparatively, turnout tends to be much higher and proportional than majoritarian countries. So uh, uh, but there are moments in which U.S. politics has had high turnout, the 1880s, in which politics was extremely polarized and there was a there was a a tremendous patronage system that not only the 18, I mean, it was the 1820s through the end of the 19th century. And 1820s was very low, but 1840s was very
2: high let me ask Lee a different question um this is because this is something we haven't um talked about one of the ways I think about the difference between a, a PR system and a and a first pass the post system is that uh in a PR system you know many more voters can remain sort of pure to their political preferences or their ideological commitments you know if you have, you can vote for a party that's only going to get 10 percent of the vote and they'll get 10 percent of the seats Or in your five-member, multi-member district, the party has to get 17% of the vote to get a seat. But, you know, voters can, can remain kind of much more pure in their commitments. And then the experience of democratic compromise and negotiation and the like takes place at the elite level when you elect these six parties, and now the leaders of those parties have to figure out how to put together a coalition on this issue or that issue, you know, in order to form a majority to act. In the first past the post system part of the way I think about it is voters, in some sense, have that democratic experience, if you will, of you know compromise negotiation trade offs, the like. You know, at the at the point at which they're deciding on which candidates to prefer in a primary and which candidates to choose in the general election, but particularly in the primary, where you have a range of options within a party. And voters have to make judgments about, you know, their pol- their, their sincere policy preferences, their views about who's electable, uh, and the like. And you also kind of know what you're getting, of course, in the first pass of the post system. You you know, to the extent the parties have agendas and ideologies and platforms, if you will, not that anybody pays attention to platforms in the U.S., but you you know, people, you have much more of a sense of what you're getting. You know, these are standard issues with the PR system. I mean, if you're worried about tribalism why aren't you worried about people hiving themselves off into six separate parties so you'll you've suggested there'd be a Christian nationalist party on the right and people who have are that viewpoint would you know have a party as a home and wouldn't really have to confront in the same way people who might be conservative but are not Christian nationalists but they might have to be in coalition with them to actually gain power you know or you have a, a green party on the left All the young people who are very focused on climate change, very happy supporting that party. If it gets 17 percent of the vote, you know, they'll get seats. So why isn't PR worse in that sense for the Democratic experience?
1: Well, uh, so, I mean, I'll say say a few things just at a a general high level here and then move in, which is that. Right. I mean, you've identified the distinction between a multi-party PR system. People are voting for parties, and then the parties form coalitions after the election. And that leaves it to the political professionals to form the party. And there's some sense voters don't know exactly what they're going to get. Whereas in a first-past-the-post system with two parties, you're voting for a party. And if that party wins the most seats, that party will control government. Except that 75% Seventy-five percent of the time, for over fifty years now, we get divided governments. So we don't actually, voters don't actually, aren't actually giving governments a mandate. So they're voting often, will wind up with with a sense of divided government. So we're not actually getting what I mean. If we had a, a Westminster system like the UK, in which a, a vote, gar- in which a party majority guarantees government control. Then I, I think that's right. But in, in our system, but, with, you, but your system, but your system would still have that problem, obviously, right? Because we still have bicameralism. We still have right, separation right, of right. powers. Right. We still have separation of powers. But we'd have so if the argument is that voters know exactly what they're getting in a two-party system, the reality is that what we're often getting is actually some sort of some sort of complicated outcome based on divided government or even within the parties, that the parties, the parties are such broad... Tent parties that that it's it's not often clear what what voters are actually supporting. So voters were voting for Biden for a lot of reasons, including uh, that they didn't want Trump. They were voting for Democrats for a lot of reasons in 2020, including that they they didn't like Republicans. And that I mean I I don't see where the having one long coalition election after election is building moderation and tolerance among U.S. voters. I think it's just that the parties, because the parties are are fragmented, as you say, in many ways, and internally divided, it's actually harder for them to campaign on programmatic policy. And so they wind up campaigning on negative partisanship. So it's not actually clear what voters are supporting. Whereas in in a six-party system, uh, yes, voters can each vote for their parties, but people tend to change party allegiances from election to election so people get locked in, less locked in and and the other the other aspect is in terms of care about extremism is there's there's the losers consent problem which is you know fundamentally democracy is about accepting the outcomes of elections and in majoritarian binary system losers feel like they're totally out of power because they they've just been shut out I mean, we've had these first past the post systems in the UK and the US for
2: several hundred years. You know, this is a recent phenomenon that
1: losers feel that way. Well, I don't know. I, I, I mean, the the the, 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 the 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 canonical book on this was published in 1993, so I, so that's thirty years ago. So, I mean, it's been going on for at least 40 years. If you've got to have 10 years of data collection, and there there are papers going back to the 60s and 70s that show this. But, I, I mean, since the founding, we, we did... I mean, I, I mean, the, the notion of dissent, have... the
0: the very notion of dissent and democratic governance has been something that we've kind of cultivated both in and out of doors. I mean, it took a long lot of time ministry. to build, build legitimate opposition. Well, I mean, they were doing it. I mean, the Democratic Republican societies, the anti-federalists. I mean, you can I mean, the, the the regulator movements and others. But yes, eventually it kind of comes indoors and it has there is a and that is a very intriguing idea is it To what extent do these two views of American democracy treat? the, in dissent and what is the consequence and the impact they have on that? It's a bigger question for another show, I think, but, uh, that has definitely got me thinking there. I don't know.
2: I I'm very skeptical that losers are more willing to accept losses in a, in a PR election. If they think a huge amount is at stake, the problem part of the problem is right now is people feel politics has become existential in the U S and so everything's at stake. Well, they, well, I would say most- more, more, more in the U.S. Yeah, more in the U.S. And maybe they're right. Maybe those perceptions are right. Who's to say? The question is, you know, what is making politics in this era like that in the U.S.? And I just find it hard to believe it's the first past the post well, system. Well, it's not the f- as opposed to much bigger, bigger things in American political well, culture. Well, I,
1: I agree. It's a lot of things, um, but it's it filtered through the binary party system that the first-past-the-post creates, right? So, it, like, I mean, we had a first-past-the-post system, and it worked fine when the poli- when politics were not nationalized, when culture cultural issues were not central, when the two parties were not at this constant parity, and we had meaningful factions and overlap within the parties. But th- those conditions are, I think, pretty deep in the past at this point. And so the 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 circumstances that are making America ungovernable are many, but the you know it, it, some of them are are going to be really hard to change and some of them are going to be impossible to change. So I'm going to go for the really hard. <laughs> I like it. I like it. You got to you got to aim high.
2: Yes. And I worry that you're going for the you know the, the more reachable will actually make the situation worse, of course. maybe he's just giving himself something to do for the next 10 years look i mean you know to to just sort of keep keep on this point about the the importance of effective government at the end of the day the way in which people value or assess their government is more than anything else driven by whether the government seems to be delivering on the issues that they care about and if governments do that if they if we find ways to make this system work as you know Biden has in the last you know period of of the prior congressional uh, session um maybe people will you know this toxic effective polarization will diminish but which but people if you can't
1: which, do that well no of course there's never gonna it's not like well, everybody well, but going but let to, me uh, uh, let, let me just be. just make a, a finer point on that is Biden I I think has done done a lot and I I support his agenda. And I think there's a lot of stuff that will improve the lives of of a lot of people. But for a a good 35 to 40 percent of the country, Biden's been a been a complete disaster. And for another 10 percent, Biden's mostly been a disaster. And they don't because of the the bifurcated politics, which is reinforced by the media. So like in a two party system, it's the job of the opposition party to make the party in government look bad and incompetent. And that's especially the case in the current US politics. So even to the extent that, that that you have effective government, there's another party that has equal power who is organized to tell people that the government is not working and you need to change the system. And that I think that is a tremendous challenge to, even if you get effective government, are people going to actually know it? especially over the time frame that it will take for a lot of these policies to work let me ask
2: you I mean I'm it's nice to be able to have this extended conversation with you because we've kind of talked around these issues a bit in other contexts so let me ask you another question which actually kind of comes from the other perspective of how significant this reform would turn out to be in practice so you know if we continue to have the higher offices the presidency and the Senate uh be completely dominated by Republicans and Democrats because we're going to have a first past the post system for those and we're going to have you know two-party politics around all those offices why do you think even if we go to this fantasy PR five member multi-member district system 700 house members whatever why do you think we actually would have significant representation of third fourth fifth parties I'm sure there'd be some people would get elected but i have i have wondered about this from the other side if you if you can't change these other institutions people who are politically ambitious which includes most people going into politics uh are going to see their future fate linked to the republican or the democratic party ultimately this will give them a
1: toehold maybe yeah i mean i i think to the extent that that it's it's about organization all right. I mean, you, you have to have entrepreneurs who want to organize new parties that could compete. And, you know, frankly, I, I think there are so many parts of the country where the Republican brand is uh, toxic that there will be entrepreneurs on the center right who want to organize a new party to compete. And there are so many parts of the country where the Democratic brand is so toxic that there will be organizers who want to organize a a different brand, as well as there are real factions within the party. I mean, the Justice Democrats are kind of a proto party within the Democratic Party already. I think they would like to have their own party. I think the more centrist Democrats would like to have their own party that doesn't have to explain why they're, they're they're actually for funding the police. And there's a lot of money in politics right now and a lot of folks who want to organize these separate factions that maybe would form coalitions with each other but i i I think when there's opportunities uh people will organize and you think just just to follow up on that again to keep this
2: concrete for people so you think when the justice democrats have their own party and the moderate democrats have their own party and the there's a green party as well on the left that we're more likely to get those groups to agree on policy
1: than when they're part of the same party. Well, well, here, here's, here's what I think is that what's what's happening within the two parties now is that there are different groups fighting for supremacy because if they, if you get to be a plurality of a plurality, you get total control. Uh, so the Justice Democrats, if they had a fifteen percent party, they know we're a fifteen percent party. That's what we represent, but. If they think that they can take over the Democratic Party and be, then they get total power in the same way that the Tea Party, they, they originally started as a third party. And then they said, well, actually, if we can take over the Republican Party, then we get total control. The, so, And the flip side of that is to think about what, what, what happened with Kevin McCarthy is that he only had one way to form a coalition uh, that would elect him speaker because there was no center left party that he could do business with. If there was a center left party that he could do business with, he could have formed a very different coalition to become speaker in the same way that Hakeem Jeffries, if he if he's the the leader of the centrist center left party and he wants to be speaker, he can form a coalition with uh, uh, folks on the. The center right. This is sort of like that that uh, SPD-CSU CS, or CDU coalition that you talked about. So th- there's just different ways for coalitions to form. But if you look at, go- at at formations of coalitions in European multi-party systems, they almost always have to include the center, just by definition. It's very rare that, that a governing coalition does not include the political center.
0: Well, I want to just propose that rick i would love to have you come back this is i mean i've already i've learned so much from this uh there's so many more questions <laughs> i want to ask i want to hear you and lee argue about this more i also want to have them come back because finally someone recognizes that the senate is superior to the house it's the higher place right and that i also when i go to the house i feel like there's like a thousand people over there like i don't know it just is it's a former senate staffer it just feels like they got a lot of people over there already seven if we got more i thought they were 700 already who knew I guess, I mean, maybe there's 700,000. I don't know. Uh, But Rick, this has been uh, such a joy. It's been it's given me a lot to think about, a lot to chew on. I'm sure it will our listeners. And uh, I'm going to go ahead unilaterally. And then I want you to come back if you would be so kind as to grace us with your presence in the future and and continue this conversation.
2: I I think, yeah, I I mean, this has been lots of fun for me as well. I, I figured that wherever we started with some of my work, we'd end up With me and lee uh debating pr for the u.s house and i think it's a you know important debate to be to be having um and i i think this is a really good discussion
0: and i learned a lot from it myself well thank you for joining thank you thank you for joining us this has been another
1: episode of politics in question Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly.
0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group,